Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. Swan Signal pairs great guests for compelling discussions. And this week we have author and educator Saifedina Moose and George Gammon, host of The Rebel Capitalist Show. Pairing up great guests is a unique format in the Bitcoin content space and has produced some incredible content so far. In my opinion, Swan Signal absolutely deserves a spot in your rotation. So subscribe today if you're not already. Glad you found your way here. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Swan Signal Live, a production of Swan Bitcoin. Swan Signal is a weekly show that pairs up great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, Head of Education at SWAN. Uh, But before we dive in, a quick word about the service we provide here at SWAN. We've built the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. It's a very simple setup. One, you just connect your bank account to AutoFund USD. Two, uh, we automatically stack for you. Uh, Three, you can set up automatic withdrawals to your wallets. We do all this with very low fees uh, in the industry, up to 80% lower than cash, um, sorry, than Coinbase, absolutely crushing Coinbase and up to 57% lower than Cash App for automatic recurring purchases. Uh, and today, I have some big news for you all. Uh, we are launching our daily buys beta. Uh, we've had a huge demand to add daily buys to our weekly, bi-monthly, and monthly uh, purchase frequencies. And uh, so we're about to roll that out. You can sign up at swanbitcoin.com. Just add your email address, click get started to be added to the beta list, or you can DM us on Twitter at swanbitcoin. We have about uh, 400 out of our 1,000 uh, daily buys beta slots filled up, so, so get in there. All right, I'm really excited to welcome our guest to the show today. Uh, first, we have the inimitable Saifedean Amus with us today. He's author of a staple of the Bitcoin canon, of course, the Bitcoin standard, and he's an economics educator and researcher. You can find Saif's work at saifedean.com. Saif, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much for having me. It's always uh, fun to join you, Brady. All right. And we have finance and wealth management YouTuber, uh, host of the Rebel Capitalist Show, and investor George Gammon with us today as well. You can subscribe to George's channel at youtube.com slash George Gammon. Uh, Gammon is G-A-M-M-O-N. Welcome, George. How's it going today? Doing very well. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on the show. I uh, really appreciate your time. Okay. Let's dive in and get started with the big news from yesterday that uh, Bitcoin Twitter is abuzz about. Uh, the news that MicroStrategy announced that they made a $250 million Bitcoin purchase. Uh, BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, and Vanguard, the largest provider of mutual funds in the world, both hold a significant stake in MicroStrategy. The two of them together hold over 25%. Uh, so it seems likely that they had prior notice of this buy. And if so, that means that these two financial behemoths just essentially approved a massive uh, Bitcoin buy. Um, the MicroStrategy stock price is up around 15% on the news. Uh, so that means I'm sure that other CEOs are taking notice. Um, we've also seen in the past few months, big macro investors are publicly announcing their Bitcoin positions. Paul Tudor Jones, Raul Powell, Lynn Alden, who we had on the show recently. Um, and for instance, uh, Raul Powell recently tweeted that Bitcoin is the future and is wildly underpriced. So George, let's start with you on this one. Uh, what do you think of these developments and their implications for Bitcoin? Well, I'd have to go with Lynn Alden. She's my, my partner in Rebel Capitalist Pro. So <laughs> anything she says, I'm definitely going to go along with because she is definitely one of the smartest people I have ever met in my life without exception. 
But I, I think the best information I can give you is just some insider information right here from St. Bart's. And I came here maybe three weeks ago because I wanted to find a place in the world where I could just go to the gym or I could go to the beach where things were as close to normal as you could find. And if your viewers or your listeners have never been to St. Bart's, it's uh, right in the Caribbean. It's basically like Monaco. So there's 9,000 people on this little island and it's extremely affluent. And I would say, I mean, 90% of the people here are in finance. They're hedge fund managers, they're investment bankers, they're straight from Wall Street. They're, uh, this is the, the group that you were basically just mentioning. And I've gone to several uh, social gatherings, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, you're having drinks with the guys, you're saying, what do you do? And uh, I'm not gonna mention any names, but a lot of the people that I've met here, you'd recognize from CNBC, you'd recognize from Bloomberg. And um, I would say pretty much every single one of them that I uh, spoke with after a few drinks, we ended up uh, talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> and so uh, you can take that for what it's worth. And I don't really know what's going on as far as the news. I don't know what's going on with this company or BlackRock, but I do know that every hedge fund manager I'm talking to here in St. Bart's after a couple drinks, that's where the conversation goes. <laughs> Great. Tell them about my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great place to start uh, for sure. It's, it's widely recommended. Uh, safe. Um, mm -hmm. what, what are the implications here for Bitcoin? Uh, I've got a follow-up after this, but I'd like to hear just your initial thoughts. I think it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite significant because um, a lot of people have spent the last few years discussing Bitcoin from the perspective of uh, payments and retail adoption. And the idea was, you know, when am I going to be able to pay for my coffee or for my McDonald's from, uh, with Bitcoin? And, uh, you know, the point that I made in my book in the Bitcoin Standard is that um, Bitcoin is not competing with Visa, with MasterCards, with all these payment methods. Bitcoin is not an alternative to these things. It doesn't compete with them. It's orthogonal to them. You can install all of those things on top of Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is competing with the actual assets that are being traded on these networks. It's competing with the currencies, with the national currencies and with um, gold as a form of money and as a store of value. And I think uh, this um, development bears it out. And it's, of course, it's, it, it's absolutely massive. It's $250 million of Bitcoin, uh, which is not a chump change. I mean, it's a, it's a large company that makes about a half a billion dollars of revenue a year. And um, it's a company that has a significant cash balance and it has reached the conclusion that um, the best thing for us to do with a significant part of our cash balance is to hold some Bitcoin. And uh, somebody dug up their, uh, I think it was the investor letter from a few weeks or a few months ago, where they had discussed, um, or if it was, I'm not sure if it was a conference call or the letter, but they discussed their cash position and they said, our outlook on our cash position is becoming negative now because of um, all of the developments of the last three months. Uh, with the coronavirus uh, lockdowns and so on. And um, they they have a negative outlook on their cash position. And now we see that they've acted upon that and uh, they've replaced uh, the part of their holdings of uh, US dollar cash with Bitcoin. And I think um, a lot of people are going to see the benefit of this. And I think really this is how Bitcoin adoption happens. 
Bitcoin is going to become part of people's cash balances. And if it continues to work, if it continues to operate and it continues to appreciate, it's going to become an increasingly, increasingly significant uh, part of other people's cash balances, particularly as other currencies um, uh, continue to lose value more and more over time. So the, 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 the phenomenon I describe in my book is that in the long run, value accrues to the hardest money. And um, I think, you know, uh, uh, micro uh, systems um, recognizing that, I think, is, is uh, I, I find it to be very exciting because uh, it'll be interesting if, to see what happens when more companies uh, real, uh, do that. I mean, if, if, if we look at Bitcoin's average performance over the last 10 years, I think it's gone up. I, last time I ran the numbers, it was maybe 500 or 400% per year on average. So if Bitcoin has an average year for Bitcoin next year, um, every company is going to pay attention because that's, this move is likely to end up being more profitable than anything else uh, the, the company has done. Um, and I think that just uh, shows the value proposition for investing in an alternative to central banks. The market is telling the world, you know, um, invest in this uh, central bank alternative that uh, works well. Yeah, you know, I think that... <coughs> ahead, I, I know, I'm sorry, I don't know the format here, but just to uh, dovetail on that thought, I think in going back to the people that I'm speaking with who are the professionals, uh, short term, I think it's more of a speculation. And I don't really see gold as competing with Bitcoin or silver just because I see them as two completely separate asset classes. I would never buy Bitcoin for the reasons I buy gold and vice versa, because gold to me is just an insurance policy. It's not a way to get rich. It's a way to stay rich. And with Bitcoin, it's a fantastic asymmetric speculation. So I just see them as two completely separate things. Now, that said, I think long term, uh, what you were saying with your book is, is really interesting because you're talking about how in the long run, everything goes into hard currencies or, or hard money like we've seen in the past with gold. And when you were saying that, it reminded me of Gresham's Law. And if, 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 the, if, Brady, if your viewers aren't familiar with Gresham's Law, it's basically the bad money chases out good money. So let's use an example of uh, ancient Rome or, or some uh, society where they used physical gold coins. And when they get over indebted, what happens is the, the president or king or whomever says, okay, well, we'll just solve this problem by, by making these new coins and we'll just paint them gold, but really they're, they're nickel or they're copper or something like that. <laughs> they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes and they, they issue more and more of this uh, currency, we'll call it, but everyone knows it's fake. So the more they issue these currencies, the more the real gold coins come out of circulation because smart people see the value, they see the intrinsic value and they start hoarding all of the real money. It's Gresham's law. Yep. And over the long term, I'm not saying it's happening today, but it, it could happen with Bitcoin. It's a very interesting concept. Yeah, but I think, uh, you know, the, the, the nickel uh, coins are nowhere to be found today, but gold coins are still around today. So I think Gresham's law talks about the um, which coins will be used for um, legal commercial and um, transactions in the country? And the answer is, um, you know, clearly in Venezuela today, everybody wants to spend their bolivars uh, if they can, uh, but nobody wants to take them. So officially, yes, the bolivar has driven out the US dollar uh, because it is the worst money 
many, many times over. But in reality, you know, the Bolivar continues to drop further and further and further. And any actual real wealth that exists in Venezuela is stored in the US dollar or in Bitcoin or in gold. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's misinterpreted by Keynesians to suggest that, oh, if it's, uh, if it's, a, if it's an uh, easy money, then it's just going to win out over the harder money. Well, no, it's going to win out because people are just going to get rid of it. But eventually, uh, it's not going to be money very quickly because it's going to just lose its value quickly and eventually the harder money will remain. Yeah, and, that's my point, yeah. Yeah, I think this is, this is effectively what's happening with Bitcoin. And you're right in that it is an asymmetric bet now, but in, it's an asymmetric bet where the, um, you know, the, the positive upside outcome is that it becomes something like gold. It stops being an asymmetric bet. It becomes just the, the, the predominant monetary asset. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're at least 100x uh, away from there, or maybe 50x uh, away from there, or 1,000x away from there. God knows how much more bull run we have to get there. But, uh, you know, Bitcoin keeps going up. Uh, it eats everything else, you know. Um, not saying it will happen, but it's, it, it hasn't looked like it's been uh, stoppable over the last 10 years. So we'll see. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you guys have done the math. I'd be curious to know how much bit the price of Bitcoin would have to go up in order for it to be equivalent to the market value of gold or the market cap of gold? Um, it's, at about, um, it's at about the price of uh, one uh, gold bar, like the uh, 12, kilo, 12 and a half kilogram, uh, 400 ounce bar. So basically one Bitcoin would be worth about 400 ounces of uh, gold. Yeah, the math I'd like to do is figure out how much gold is in the world right now. I think it's about 180, 170,000 tons. Yeah, so then what, what's, how much is that in dollar terms? And then figure out how much uh, Bitcoin would have to go up to equal that amount. You know, it's it's uh, about, I think it's about $10 trillion at this point. If I'm running... Gold, gold is yeah. about uh, $10 trillion, yeah. Because it's about, yeah, 180,000 tons and then one kilogram is, I think, around $60,000 or something. Yeah, um, I think you multiply these, you end up with around ten trillion. It's it's in that ballpark. So Bitcoin is around two hundred billion so far. So yeah, that I think that's your upside. Exactly, two <laughs> percent of gold. And that's two percent. That's, that's not the upside, actually. That's uh, that's just one way station uh, on the uh, one base camp uh, <laughs> on the real launch, because um, that's just gold. Right now, in a world in which all kinds of other monetary assets are used because gold is not allowed to be in a free market. If we could have a free market of money, I believe gold would win and everybody would be using uh, monetary yeah. instruments back That's to the gold. Good point. Good point. But, and, and in that case, probably gold would be worth a lot more than what it is today because we wouldn't have all these uh, national currencies. So there's also that. So gold and then there's the national currencies. And then there's the question of how much of the store of value mar market in the world, how much of the financial markets in the world and the art market and the real estate market is actually just store of value demand that could better be replicated by just going into Bitcoin. You know, how many people are just buying uh, houses and real estate investments, not because they want to own houses, but because they want to store their wealth. And so you think that could lead to um, potentially more stuff for Bitcoin to eat as it rises. Another fantastic point. I do a lot of business in South America, and I've been doing so since, call it 2014. 
And for the Americans or people in more developed economies, they, they might not get this. But in South America, I, I mean, I'm going to call it almost 100% of the population stores their wealth in real estate. That's just yeah. what you do. I mean, when I was in Ecuador, even the, the, the poor people in the fishing villages, if they earned an extra even $100,000, what they do is they just build another 10 or 20 square feet on their house. And they just keep building and building, yeah. building and building. And the same thing in Medellin, Colombia, where I've been doing real estate since 2015, I would say, and I, I had the numbers for this, but almost like 90% of the apartments that are owned there are owned just outright. There's no mortgage on them because people really don't have savings accounts there. They're, they don't, their, their currency hasn't been a store of value at all. It's lost yeah. a lot more than the dollar a lot faster. So for them, their house, their apartment, their property, their finca, it, it's a store of value. It's their savings account. So yeah. I think you just hit the nail on the head there. Very interesting point. Yeah, I think in, in my book, I argue basically Bitcoin is the most advanced technology for saving that we've ever invented because it's strictly scarce. You know, even gold was the most advanced because gold by nature of its chemistry, it can never increase at more than 1% or 2% per year. But Bitcoin is even um, more advanced because in a few years, it's going to uh, go below gold's growth rate and eventually it drops to zero. So it's the one thing, one liquid asset that we have in the world that is strictly scarce. There's never going to be more than 21 million. That's it. And um, when you think about it this way, you know, th there's no better thing in which if, if you want to store value in the future, this offers, um, uh, in my mind, the explanation for why we've seen so much gains in Bitcoin. And I think as long as this continues, the case is arguably very strong that this is quite useful as a store of values simply because nobody can make more of it. We've had 10 years, 11 years of this thing running, and nobody managed to find a way of making one Bitcoin more um, than what should be made in the schedule by this block height. And I think that's an, that's an astonishing um, invention, really. Just thinking about it, it's, 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 it's almost um, Robert Breedlove uh, on Twitter compares this to the invention of zero. It's, it's a mental construct. Once we've invented, um, it, it changes the way that we can do math just by thinking of zero. And in a sense, inventing this first strictly scarce asset just changes the way that we deal with, um, with scarcity and with uh, storing value and with saving for the future. It's, it's, it's an astonishing idea. I, I would even take it a step further in, in that I don't even think it's a, a fixed number of Bitcoin. I think it's a decreasing number. Yeah. We as human beings are always going to lose them. And I, <laughs> that may be a crude way of looking at it. But yeah, there might be sure, 21 yeah. million. But sure, next year there's going to be, you know, uh, maybe 20.5. And as the years go on, you lose more and more and more of them. And so it's a, it's a scarce asset as is that becomes more and more scarce just because us clumsy human beings are just going to lose our thumb drive <laughs> or who knows what we'll do. <laughs> we, we call those donations, George. Okay. <laughs> it's philanthropy. <laughs> Deflationary philanthropy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, Safe, I want to circle back to this idea of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, monetary premiums in, you know, other assets, especially real estate. So, how much do you think that the monetary, you know, premiums in these, you know, actually hard assets uh, drives wealth inequality or inequality of access to these assets that are needed? 
I think it's 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 um, it, it's quite uh, significant because it, um, it it makes the market for people who are looking for homes. It's not just you know young people who are looking to leave their parents' home and start their own family and have their own home. On top of that, you have all the uh, people who already have a house but are looking for a savings account that can't be confiscated uh, through capital controls and inflation by their um, government. And so you, it's instead of you know, the, the, the people in Latin America, instead of putting money in a bank account or a stock market or something that, um, you know, some advanced technology for saving like Bitcoin, they end up having to buy a new apartment. So you see this all over the world. So many, um, yeah, so many apartments are empty or are owned by people that are renting them out. And it, um, it's, it's, it's increased demand. You know, most people have no business speculating in the real estate business. Like this, is, this should be something that is provided by professionals who have expertise in this business. If you're a doctor, you're not providing any value to the real estate business by um, investing in real estate properties. And I think um, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a healthy financial system, what you're looking for in terms of savings you would save in a you would keep in a decent saving vehicle like gold or bitcoin and then what you would what you're looking to invest you'd invest in things in which you have um, some kind of specific edge um, that that allows you to understand probably your own business you know you'd open your own clinic your own practice um, or you know some business that you have some expertise with but i think this notion that everybody needs to be a real estate speculator just so that they can retire is in my mind, massive inefficiency in the housing market. And I, I think we'd have cheaper houses available for people if, um, if, if it was just the people who, uh, if the people bidding for houses were only the people who are looking for houses to live in, to buy, you know, and if credit for housing wasn't so easy to get, houses would be far cheaper. I mean, I think that's a huge point that, that I hope everyone just understands and I would take it and say all financial assets. And if you yeah. go back to 1913, let's take it back to 1930. And if you look at a chart of inflation from 1930 to today, you see that every single year it's just pretty much going up. We've got a few years that just goes down a fraction that might stay the same, but it's just up, 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 up. You take it prior to 1930 and you see that inflation and deflation was more like a heartbeat. It would go up, it would go down, it would go up, it would go down. And most of the time it stayed pretty consistent. And if you look at the, the 1800s as an example, the late 1800s, we had about 3% deflation per year. Yeah. So the price of goods and services were going down. Now, most people, especially Keynesians, would have a heart attack and say, oh my gosh, that must have been the most horrible time in history. But it wasn't. We had nominal GDP growth. And we had nominal wages increase. We also had about 4% nominal rates. So you could put your money in a bank back then and you could get a 7% real return. So you didn't need to speculate on a real estate or in the stock market or in bonds. But yeah. now that we have a 2 or 3% per year inflation, I would argue that it's higher uh, you know, going back to 1980, you don't have a choice. The average yep. Joe and Jane, whether they, they, they know it consciously or subconsciously, they realize that if they keep their money in the bank, they're never going to be able to retire. The only thing that, that the way that you get ahead is you buy a home or you take and you put as much money as you possibly can in your 401k 
to go in the stock market and then maybe, just maybe, you'll have enough money to retire. Yeah. But if you think about it, that's because we have lived in a state of inflation where those currency units are losing value every single day. If they were gaining in value every single day, it's the complete opposite. And I would go so far as to say it would not only alleviate the misallocation of resources through just pure speculation of the overall economy, but it would it would make society so much better because people, they just as an example, a McDonald's worker, let's say they're making $1,500 a month, their expenses are $1,500 a month. If you take and run that math over 20 years at 3% deflation and a 1% raise in their nominal wages, at the end of the 20 years, they're making $1,800 a month doing the same job flipping burgers. If they don't get a raise, if they don't get a promotion, and yeah. you say, well, George, that's only a $300 raise over 20 years. Right. But their expenses have gone from $1,500 down to $800. You exactly. see? So now there's a $1,000 delta right there, and they have $1,000 every single month of disposable income. They've gotten richer just as a result of letting the free market do its job, create goods and services at lower and lower prices. And Absolutely. That's all, that's all music to my ears. I mean, I, it's, it, pe- people don't get the idea that, you know, economics is not a rat race. Economics is we produce stuff and then that makes life better for us. And really, by, by burning the value of our money, we're making it so that every person has, um, every person is constantly watching, you know, the alternative is that you're just going to watch your wealth be dissipated. So you have no reason to save. You have no reason to think about the future. Your focus is going to be about what can I do with this money right now? And so that destroys the incentive for saving. In fact, think about it, you know, um, it, it, with a hard money it, that appreciates at one or two or 3%, you know, children could start getting their uh, birthday gifts in small little sums of money and then they can start watching them appreciate over time from the age of three, five, ten, you start saving and you watch them appreciating. And it makes sense that, you know, you'd work little jobs in the summer um, as a kid, you do a little bit of work here and there and you, and you could see people actually saving up from their own money. And with, uh, you know, with the help of uh, some savings, some work and some deflation, it's not impossible to imagine that uh, you know, any normal person working any kind of menial job, given the technological capacity of our society today, it's normal that people should be able to afford normal and decent homes with 24-hour electricity and running hot water. It's just something that is so cheap to produce, given our technological capacities today, that really any burger flipper should be able to afford it. Like if you spend eight hours a day flipping burgers, that's an extremely valuable thing. You should be able to afford saving up to that after a few years. You should be able to afford to buy a house. I think it would be something that would be taken for granted in this world. And for most of, uh, you know, for, 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 for most of the 19th century, you, uh, you're right. People could people could save. People had that um, ethic of saving. They had that idea that you know you put your money aside and you save and you want it to grow. And now that's completely replaced with the idea that no, you just continue to spend and all of your life you spend, you spend, you spend, and then when you have major expenses, you just take out a loan and you get into debt. And then the more income you get, the bigger debt you can take on. Yeah, also too. And and it's ironic that we've got the people in the central bank, all these PhDs that see inflation as the solution, right? They they, they see it as the solution to everyone's problems. 
instead of looking at it as the cause of the problem. Absolutely. If we could just get people to, to rearrange their thinking and say, okay, wait a minute, if all this additional government spending, let's say through welfare, uh, this creates inflation. It creates this additional money supply. Now, whether that comes out in the CPI due to velocity, that's a whole other story. But you're increasing the money supply through this, uh, the debt monetization of the Fed. And let's say they're spending it on welfare. That's the solution that, w- that as a society, we look to. Well, the government just has to spend more money. The government just has to provide health care or whatever. But if we s- turned it on, it on its head, so to speak, and said, well, if we just go back to deflation, we don't need the government to, to solve all these problems, which they just make worse. The society could handle it on their own because they've got a hard money that stays consistent or appreciates over time. And you know, listen, if, if that's where Bitcoin can take us, then uh, I, I think everyone should be on board. And philosophically, I don't think anyone is more aligned with Bitcoin than I am. Uh, whether it, it pans out, uh, you know, only time will tell. But uh, I think if you understand really the ramifications for society at large to have a currency or a store of value that's, uh, that's scarce, that's limited, I, I mean, it, it, you almost solve every single problem that we have, at least in the developed economies today. Yeah, and a lot of people make fun, about, make fun of Bitcoiners because we, one of the things that we're always saying is whatever problem there is, Bitcoin fixes this. But really, if we do manage to put central banks out of business and replace them with a form of software where everybody in the world can have access to a hard money that they could save in, really, that's going to fix an enormous amount of <laughs> problems all over the world. It's all about hard money. It yeah, really is. Money, whether it's gold, whether it's Bitcoin, whether you want to price it in oil, I, I don't, you know, whatever you want yeah. to do, as long as you got that hard money, that's what it's all about. Yeah, but oil, oil is not a hard money. And well, you, know, I'm just saying, you, you use anything you want. I don't care what you plug into the equation. As long well, as I mean, you know, the, the, the reason gold was used is because it is hard. But I think the, uh, the, the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that it gets over the one limitation of gold, which is that gold is physical and clunky to move around. Bitcoin is native to the internet, so there's no physical asset to it anywhere. There's nothing in the world that is a physical manifestation of Bitcoin that is needed for Bitcoin to operate. And so it exists purely digitally. And so it can travel around the world very fast, very cheap. That's the really powerful thing about it. And so far, the past 11 years, you know, we don't really have time to get into the technical details, but it's, you know, look, judging by results, we've had 11 years in which the, the, the supply has not been inflated by anybody or corrupted by anybody. That's the really interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you... I'm sorry, Bert. Do you have another question there, buddy? I was going to... No, go ahead, man. Go yeah, ahead. I I, this is great. How you guys reconcile the, uh, the advancement of Bitcoin. Let, let's say that it, it triples in value. Let's say it uh, quadruples in value. So now, all of a sudden, it's, it's a competitor where the government really sees this as competing with the dollar. And I understand that they can't ban it from a standpoint that, that it's decentralized. I totally get that but they make it illegal to where the consequences of being caught, although very few people actually do get caught, but the consequences are so extreme that it prevents people from using it or holding it or want to. How, how do we get around that with Bitcoin? I mean, um, you know, first of all, there's no promises and no guarantees. Uh, so the, obviously this is a risk that any investor needs to uh, assume and assess on their own. Um, but I would say 
the 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 first of all the, the fact that um, trying to pass a ban like this is highly unlikely to succeed is um, you know you, you can see it from the fact that uh, you can still get drugs in pretty much any major city in the world even though drugs are illegal and even though drugs need to be physically produced and processed and transported and uh, sold and yet you can still secure them. So Bitcoin requires people to just run code on their computers and it can be encrypted. And, um, you know, with modern, um, of course, there'll always be surveillance mechanisms, but there are always ways to get around them. Um, it's, 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 it's a complicated rat and mouse, a cat and mouse game. But um, I think ultimately it's very hard to ban it. And I think um, it seems that in, in, we, at some point, it might even be ridiculous that we're uh, discussing this because it's been 11 years now and, you know, some governments have issued recommendations against it here and there, but practically we haven't seen any kind of real clampdown or crackdown on Bitcoin. And it's getting to a point where it's um, entering into the mainstream. And I think, um, you know, my, the, the way that I look at it is that in a sense, this is, an, this is a superior technology. And this is a point that I make repeatedly in my talks in that people think about this as if it's just, uh, you know, like an, a new um, gimmick, um, whether they'll let us adopt it or they won't let us adopt it. But I think it's better to think about it as something like dynamite. So when you've invented dynamite, governments can make it illegal, but, you know, the smarter ones would rather have the dynamite themselves, you know? And I think this is the case with Bitcoin. I think the, the ultimate security of Bitcoin rests not on uh, maybe the technical specifications, but it rests on the fact that it's going to be compelling as an economic option for everybody, including people in government. And I think um, we see this increasingly. Members of Congress are open about the fact that they hold Bitcoin and we see more and more financial institutions getting into it. Um, so, you know, it, it's... Uh, it's 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 more likely that people once they understand the implications of bitcoin it's more likely that they would want to be on the side of bitcoin rather than fighting it because fighting it is extremely expensive and it has an extreme extremely high opportunity cost because if you failed you know you could have spent all that time and money on securing yourself more of the uh, scarce bitcoin pie so i think um it, it, incidentally i think the point where i started really paying attention to bitcoin was when um, when when it uh, in 2013 when it didn't really collapse after the Silk Road uh, incident, uh, you know after that was shut down and Bitcoin continued to operate, and later on I remember hearing something about uh, from one of the investigators where she I think said something along the lines of uh, initially my intuition was oh you know once I started learning about Bitcoin my my initial intuition was all right we should just shut this thing down. But then as I dug into it, I thought to myself, no, we should use this to identify the drug dealers and to uh, work with them. And uh, interestingly enough, um, and I've heard several stories of this, both in person uh, to talking to people as well as um, reading about them. Interestingly enough, that same investigator ended up also working in Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin and using it. And um, now she works in um, some Bitcoin companies as well. So I think there's, there, there's this allure to hard money that I think if, if, if you clearly uh, obviously understand the value proposition of gold 
And in a sense, you know, if you understand gold and, and you see Bitcoin as digital gold, it, it, it starts to make sense that, you know, people don't want to ban gold. They want to get their hands on it. So they, if they're banning it, they're probably taking it away from you so that they would have it rather than um, banning it because they don't want to touch it, you know, because it's, it's really scarce. And if it's banned, you know, I'd rather have it banned while I possess it rather than <laughs> take my chances and not own it because I can't get it back again because of yeah. its scarcity. Yeah, I, I just, I see what has happened, let's just say, since, uh, we can go back a long time, but let's just take recently what has happened 2020 with the, the coronavirus and the Fed coming in and doing limitless quantitative easing, committing to a trillion dollars a day in, in repo, just taking their balance sheet from under four trillion up to seven trillion, and, uh, or, or, or war. I mean, let's, let's, you know, Bitcoin would prevent them from uh, going into war, which I'm all about. I think everyone would be uh, in favor of that, except for uh, the people that, that in, politi in politics that uh, you know gain political power through going to war and doing all of these, uh, what I would consider nefarious things. But I think that it's just, if we were to say, okay, listen, we wanna use this uh, Bitcoin that takes away the power of the central bank to increase the money supply, and it, it eliminates the, the warfare state, it eliminates the welfare state, I, I don't think governments are going to, or at least the United States governments and the developed economies are going to jump on board with that. But what I, I do think is, is, is interesting, if we get to a point where, uh, you know, if, if Bitcoin rises in value that much, then my guess is there's going to be a lot of skepticism at that time, even more so than today with fiat currencies. And uh, one thing that I've looked into just recently because of how hard it is to travel right now, and I don't even wanna go into the story of me trying to get from Medellin, Colombia, just to St. Bart's. I mean, it was like a Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. I mean, it was just crazy having to get a humanitarian flight out of Medellin to, to Fort Lauderdale. Then in Fort Lauderdale, I couldn't get a COVID test in time to get to St. Bart's because everywhere in the Caribbean right now, you have to have a negative test that had been taken within three days. And in Florida, yeah. when I was there, the fastest you could get the results was five days. So effectively, you've got a Berlin wall around, around Florida right there if you're trying to get even somewhere like Puerto Rico. So I had to fly from, Saint, uh, from uh, Fort Lauderdale to St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands just to get a COVID test. <laughs> I could get it in 24 hours or, or 48 hours. And then go, once I got the test done, then go to Puerto Rico, then down to St. Bart's on a semi-charter flight. I mean, it was insanity. But my point is I'm like, okay, I, I'm in the process right now of getting my Colombian passport to have dual citizenship. But I've, I've looked into some of these Caribbean islands. Now, the, the, the passports in these islands right now, as an example, St. Kitts, uh, St. Lucia, the, the ones that you always hear about that are actually very good passports, they're a fraction of the price of what they were prior to COVID because all of their revenues are decreasing. So they have to lower their prices to compete with other countries that are selling these passports. So fast forward or go back to what I was saying about Bitcoin and uh, the, the, the lack of confidence in fiat currency. Maybe if we have a United States, Japan that takes those draconian measures because they, wanna, they, they want to keep the warfare and the welfare state uh, alive and well, 
and give the, the Federal Reserve the power to create money supplier, at least base money supplier M2, who knows where it goes in the future. But maybe there'll be other countries that say, hey, listen, what we'll do is we'll go and we'll use Bitcoin, like Puerto Rico right now with Act 20 and 22. I know a lot of Bitcoin guys have gone there for that. So what Puerto Rico is doing is saying, hey, guys, come here and spend your money. We'll, we'll take Bitcoin or we'll lower your taxes. We'll do whatever needs to be done to encourage you to come here and create jobs, create businesses, do these things. So maybe if you're you know, a country that's an emerging market, and you're saying, hey, how do we get out of our debt problem? How do we save our economy? I know what we'll do. We'll take Bitcoin, guys. Come here. Bring all your money. Bring on all your wealth. Bring your human capital. Bring your, your brain power, your experience. Come here and uh, you know, create a tech industry. Create businesses. Create jobs. I think that's where it could go. Also, too, if central banks, and you guys would know this a heck of a lot better than I would, but a few people that I've talked to recently that know the Bitcoin space have, have kind of gone over this hypothesis in their, when I was interviewing them about if central banks start bringing Bitcoin on and using that as an asset on their balance sheet, a little bit like they do with gold. So then if you had the, the central banks that were kind of giving it the green light, although it might not become and replace their, you know, uh, their hallowed fiat currency, <laughs> it, it, you know, it becomes more adopted. And then you kind of have that boiling of the frog effect with, with Bitcoin boiling the, uh, the, the frog being the, pol the politicians, the uh, federal government and the central bank of, of that nation. You know, they just gradually adopt it. So yeah. I, I, that kind of goes along with what you're saying. But, th but that's kind of the, where, where I find the argument very interesting against what I brought up initially with uh, the government's just not wanting to lose power over the printing press and just saying, you know what, Bitcoin's illegal. Yeah, and I think, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanna, I, I wanna steer this into a, a certain direction. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so the irony that you were trying to point out, George, was that, you know, government interventions under the guise of, you know, trying to fix the problems, fix certain problems in society. Uh, and the vast majority of them, you know, were caused by this singular intervention that we all know as the government, you know, take over control of money. Um, and as you say, you know, it's, this is how SAFE says, you know, Bitcoiners have this meme and Bitcoin fixes this. Um, SAFE, in, the, in your book, you, you write that human civilization flourished in times and places where sound money was widely adopted, whereas unsound money all too frequently coincided with civilizational decline and societal collapse. So question on the table now. How do you guys see the path toward a better, uh, better society unfolding, um, given that we transition to a Bitcoin-based economy? And what lessons might we be able to draw from historical transitions between, you know, global currencies? Safe, you want to start on this one? Sure. Um, so generally, as a little disclaimer, I'll, uh, uh, my friends will probably let you know that I am the most optimistically delusional uh, person or delusionally optimistic person. Uh, <laughs> you must be a great um, entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's best reflected in my um, support of my football team, uh, where I've believed for every one of the last 30 years that Liverpool are going to win the league. <laughs> and they never do. Of course, until this year, they've won it. So like now Chicago I guess... Fan, <laughs> I'm sorry? Like being a Chicago Cubs fan. Yeah, basically. So now perhaps, you know, my delusional optimism is not entirely misplaced since it did work out eventually. Um, and I think in this situation, I like to take the uh, optimistic take that it's 
not going to necessarily, or Bitcoin is what's going to mean that this, uh, the, the collapse of government monies going to be less painful and less problematic. I think this is the way that I would like to think of it in that um, when hyperinflation happens, the reason hyperinflation is terrible is not just because people lose money. It's not just because people lost their wealth. You know, it's not just that everybody got a, an 80 or 90 or 99% haircut on their wealth. It's the fact that uh, businesses are no longer working, uh, shelves are empty, and economic production breaks down. You know, farmers can't grow food and then food can't get to the shelves. And all of that stuff breaks down because money is no longer usable, because there's no longer money in society. And so that's the real catastrophe of hyperinflation, much more than just the financial losses that are attached to it. Um, now, the, um, in, in, in the case of Bitcoin, I'm slightly optimistic that perhaps what's going to happen is that uh, because uh, Bitcoin is um, available, as uh, we witness you know, uh, more and more of these hyperinflations around the world, more and more people will have access to Bitcoin, more and more people will be able to um, hedge against their national currencies with Bitcoin, hold a 5% position in Bitcoin, 10% position in Bitcoin, which could you know, end up being 50% of your net worth after a couple of years of national currency inflation and a couple of years of Bitcoin appreciation, 50 or even 90. So I think with this being there, it means that, um, and, and I don't think Bitcoin is yet at that point where the liquidity is large enough, but you know, possibly in a few years, uh, 10 years maybe, let's say, when more hyperinflationary cases like, say, Zimbabwe and Venezuela and Lebanon start happening, more and more people will have access to government, to Bitcoin, and these things will start mattering less and less. And the way that I see it is, uh, and I discussed this in my forthcoming book, The Fiat Standard, you know, the Bitcoin is the way that we um, euthanize and get rid of the fiat standard peacefully and uh, without too much uh, bloodshed. We don't have to butcher it and you know, risk it uh, uh, jumping and killing us uh, while we're butchering it. it we, nobody needs to be reliant upon it. And as it starts to collapse, people can uh, choose to opt out and um, use Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is better than gold in this regard because you can continue to use it internationally, whereas gold is, is much harder to use. So I'm going to go with the, um, um, and, and I discuss this, I discuss all different scenarios in the book, but I, I, I'm maybe delusionally, but I'm optimistic that, um, you know, Bitcoin ends up being more of a, more of a, of, an upgrade of the financial software of the world rather than a messy cataclysmic Roman empire collapse. Well, I can tell you that if, if you can get some way to transact that it get, that gets around the swift system that we have right now and around FATCA, the, the increase in global productivity would be, yeah. I mean, we're talking about something uh, that would that I think would be very much like the airplane, and, and let, let me explain. So that's you know, that's a great I, metaphor, yeah. And I would airplane, uh, it would let's say to go from um, Phoenix to Las Vegas. Let's just say we only had cars, right? So it takes you six hours. Well, that's six hours of your time. Well, if it only takes you an hour to fly, then that's five hours that you have saved that you could be doing. You could be producing goods and services. Well times that by however many flights there are, how many hours we save as a result. I can tell you by trying, by doing so much business in South America 
and in Medellin that just getting my own money that, that it's, it's not someone else's. I'm not getting a loan. Is it my money <laughs> from the United States just down to Medi to Colombia and then take the dollars and then buy the pesos and put them in the bank and go to the paperwork and go to the reporting system and blah, 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 blah. And then you got to pay the spread to the bank, right, for, for doing the, the, the transfer. So think about how much money is flushed down the toilet right there. And then how much time is wasted? I mean, we're talking about billions and if not trillions of dollars a yes. year. It's just this is completely wasted in economic output and productivity as a result of having to deal with something so cumbersome as the current dollar fiat system we have. And, and it's not just about the, the, the global reserve currency, just these green pieces of paper. What people have to understand, it's about the infrastructure. So that, that's why it's so hard to go from, let's say, the dollar to the, the euro or, the, or the, the yen or the yuan or something like that. It's not necessarily that it would be hard to change green pieces of paper for red pieces of paper. No, it's but just, everybody's locked into the infrastructure and the right. KYC and all of that. The infrastructure. But this infrastructure is very cumbersome. So to your point, if we could get this, this seamless way to transfer money. I remember the first time I spoke with my buddy... Um, Alex with, with uh, Nuggets News, he, he, was, he made me, right when I was talking to him on the phone, I don't know if we were live or not, but he had me uh, download this, this app on my uh, wallet while I was talking to him. I think I still got it right here. It's this wallet of Satoshi. And he told me to open it up like this. And I put it right up on the, uh, you know, in front of the, the, the camera there. And he like transferred me like two or three dollars in, in, in Satoshi's just, just through the, the little uh, webcam thing. And I mean, to think about how hard that would have been if he would have tried to transfer me, let's say, you know, $100,000 or something like that from yeah. uh, Australia to where I was in Medellin, Colombia at the time. So, I mean, this is a huge, huge advancement. It's, a, it's, it's really a game changer as far as global productivity. Also, what I wanted to say is you were talking about how the current system completely distorts the economy and it, it creates this, uh, this, this um, well, it, let me back up here. So it distorts the economy, but I would go so far as to take it even a step further back. So what I mean by this is we are talking about inflation distorting the economy, but if you look at government debt, it distorts the economy as well. And people say, well, yeah, but it's when the debt gets to a certain level. But what they don't realize is it's getting from A to B that really matters. And I think most people really don't get that. So, so let me give you an example. Like, it, like right now, the United States government is almost 50% of GDP. The government spending is over 50% of GDP. So that means yeah. that the private sector economy or the productive part of the economy is only 50%. Take that back before we had the Federal Reserve, and it was over 90% of the government was the actual private sector, you know, that, that, that really produced the goods and services. So now, even if we could just eliminate all 26 trillion in debt, the problem is that our economy has been built around this, this, uh, this, uh, this government spending. And these inefficiencies, just like uh, Venezuela, using them as an example, you know, you could solve yeah. all their, their debt problems or the dollar denominated debt. But the problem is they still have a really unstable economy because it's built around oil, where we would have the same thing. You could wipe out all these things that people perceive to be the problem, but it wouldn't rearrange our economy. 
Our economy still is the same. You look at the zombie corporations in Japan. Even if you could wipe out their debt, the zombie corporations are still there. So would anything really change if you just do a couple of counting tricks? Not really. So what Bitcoin does or what any hard money system does is it starts from the ground up and everything that you build on top of this infrastructure, on top of this foundation is solid. It's secure. Yeah. It's, it's sustainable. I mean, I know that's a buzzword now with everyone in the, you know, the green community and whatnot. But for me, something that's sustainable, number one, is something that is, is profitable. Uh, I, I know it's a, a bizarre concept in today's stock <laughs> <top> market. <laughs> but, you know, it's, 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 it's profitable, but also it, it, it doesn't require massive amounts and ever-expanding amounts of debt. Yeah. And, money printing and fiat, fiat currency, that's sustainable. And so again, my main point is that whether it's a Bitcoin standard, whether it's a gold, anything that fixes these currency units and provides us with natural deflation, a free market economy where entrepreneurs are always producing more efficient goods and services at lower and lower prices, that's where we want to be. And I think looking at this through an, optimist, an optimistic lens Hopefully, I think we could get there. I know we could get there as human beings because we've done it many, many times before. We're very resilient. And I think that's how we kind of come out the other side. Yeah. And I really think it's, uh, it's shaping up to be Bitcoin that's the solution. Bitcoin really is the... Because you identify the problem exactly in, in terms of the problem of not having a hard money and how government captures that. And Bitcoin just routes around the way government is able to capture it. And this is why I think... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of the people who's, uh, who puts a high probability on there being a violent crackdown on Bitcoin because I think it's just uh, the, the, the natural technological limitations of um, physical gold naturally led to government having the ability to abuse its authority over gold and then having that ability led to all these institutions that were built around it. Um, but, you know, when new technology is created, it creates its own reality and the world adjusts to it. So... Uh, pe pe people deal with it from a self-interested perspective. Um, and that's eventually what Bitcoin does. That, that's the cycle of skepticism. You, know, you start off thinking, of course, this can't work. Of course, it's going to fail. And then it continues to work. And then you start starting to you know, appreciate why it continues to not fail. And then you know, eventually you, you, you understand that there's value related there and, and, and that it's relevant to you and you could use it yourself. Yeah, and I think that every day that goes by, as we see more adoption with Bitcoin, the better probability you have that that's the, the default mechanism. And, you know, so many people say, oh, we'll never go on a Bitcoin standard. We'll never go on a gold standard again. It will never, ever happen. Governments will never choose to go on XYZ standard. But what they're not understanding is it might not be government's choice. Exactly. You might not have an alternative. Yeah, the Roman Empire didn't choose to go out of business. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right. So if you, if you get this gradual adoption, the more time goes on, the more Bitcoin isn't an, a new thing. It's not a bizarre thing. You don't have these grandmothers like, like bit what, bit who, you know, what's going on yeah. here? And if you look, I think it's very interesting, and I'm not sure the specific countries in Africa, but uh, I, I know many of them, the, the people aren't even using cash. They're just trading their, their cell phone minutes back and forth on their cell phone or whatever little uh, 
I forgot the, the name of the little unit of exchange, but it just goes back and forth on their cell phone. So it, although it might not be Bitcoin directly, the bottom line is it's a currency yeah. that's completely digital that's going back and forth that people are already starting to adopt. And of course, the millennials are doing it. There's, uh, you know, I, even on your Twitter feed, I know someone was uh, making fun of both of us, calling us boomers. Like, oh, I'm not watching that one. You got two boomers on there, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. but, my, but my point is, obviously, it's being more and more adopted by the younger yeah. generations. So as those kids get older, it just, it, it's not so bizarre to them. And that yeah. benefits uh, Bitcoin even more, Absolutely. I think. Do get to that point where governments don't have a choice because of a total loss of confidence in fiat currency. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to sneak in two questions here because you guys are going for 45 minutes on one question, which I love. It's great. But I'm going to sneak. I'm going to sneak two in here. Making your job um, easy, huh? I, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I want to check in. Uh, we're about 15 minutes away or so from uh, the, the appointed I. end time. Yeah. So I want to know if you guys can go a little longer than we had planned or if you have hard cut off. Uh, I'm fine. Or, uh, yeah, go ahead and, and oh, let me look at my calendar here. Are people All right, you check it out. All right, so here's the, here's the questions. To follow up on the, uh, the question about transitions, right? So we have some chatter in the YouTube chat about central bank digital currencies, like a Fed coin, right? Yeah. So Safe, what do you think about uh, the prospects of a Fed coin and you know, like the competition that it might bring against Bitcoin? I think um, ultimately uh, we might get some forms of digitization, um, more digitization. I think there will be things like that, but um, ultimately it doesn't really, it's not a digital currency. It's still a national currency because I think, uh, and it's orthogonal to Bitcoin. It's irrelevant to Bitcoin Um, or I shouldn't say irrelevant. It's different from Bitcoin because it's, um, it doesn't do anything that Bitcoin does. In particular, you know, there are two things that are uh, distinguishing Bitcoin from current um, um, national currencies, which is that Bitcoin's monetary policy is algorithmic. It's not discretionary. Nobody wakes up in the morning and decides what to do with Bitcoin's monetary policy. And also the Bitcoin payment uh, finalization and clearance and settlement is also um, algorithmic and cryptographic and um, programmable rather than um, discretionary. So. Nobody can uh, say, no, nobody can freeze your Bitcoin account. Nobody can uh, confiscate it. So those are the two main functions of central banks. That's why central banks are there, to decide who can pay and who can't pay on the one hand, and secondly, to decide um, what's going to happen with the uh, monetary policy. And so um, uh, the notion that central banks would invent a digital currency or introduce a digital currency that takes away those two things, I think, is... Um, is a non-starter. They're not. They're not going yeah. to put themselves out of business. They're not going to introduce a currency whose supply is algorithmic or whose payment clearance is totally cryptographic. They're still going to want, um, you know, what what programmers call God mode. They're still going to want the ability to say, no, you can't send them money. And they're still going to want to set the money supply. So all that they're doing is that they're just making it more digitalized and therefore hopefully making it... Um, just, you know, as George was saying, uh, getting, it, uh, getting Bitcoin acceptance uh, into people's minds. So we thank them for the uh, free PR. <laughs> yeah, basically, like a, a, la- a last gasp, like uh, rebranding of the dollar, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think Bedcoin could get us there a lot faster. And going back to what we were talking about, the, the collapse of confidence in fiat currency itself. So, 
I, I don't want to get too wonky on on everyone here, but uh, if we create, a, let's call it a Fed coin, and I actually talked to Ron Paul about this the other day, and it, basically what would have to happen is is everyone would have to have a bank account with the Fed, uh, with, with bank reserves, just like the primary dealer banks and the banks under the Fed's umbrella. Yeah. So, because the Fed right now can't really create broad money directly as of right now. I think that may change, but right now they just create base money. I don't want to bore anyone with details, but uh, that's why quantitative easing, they could take it up to 10 trillion, 20 trillion, and it wouldn't necessarily affect consumer prices because the transfer mechanism there is A, the debt monetization with the government. If they're not doing that, then it has to be lent out into new money by the commercial banking system. And those bank reserves, they're not lending those out directly. Those only just backstop additional loans and increase the capacity of their balance sheet. Okay, so, so that's the way it works right now. But I'm thinking that maybe very soon here because and we saw this how cumbersome it was to get out these stimulus checks that the, the, the Fed, because they, they're thinking, okay, we're going to take on more power. We want uh, you know, more control over the currency and how money is spent. And we want to know, you know where you're spending every single dollar. We want more and more control over that, whether it's the Fed, uh, the, the government, just the central planners, let's call them. They want to micromanage everything. So they take that, they set up this Fed coin and say, well, what you have to do is download this app on your phone and every single month we'll send you these stimulus checks or UBI, whatever you want to call it, of let's say $2,000 and you, you know, then you can go right to uh, Starbucks and use that on your phone. Okay, well everyone is going to, my opinion, most people will adopt that because it's free money and then you are on this Fed coin system. But, 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 if we look at the work of Dr. Lacey Hunt, Who's, who's one of my favorite economists. He's someone that's really in the deflationary uh, camp, but he says that once you change the Federal Reserve Act to allow the Federal Reserve to, to change their, their, what he calls their liabilities into actual currency units, into broad money, increase M2 money supply directly, that's where he goes from being a deflationist to someone who sees us being on the path to hyperinflation. Those are his words, not mine. And if you, if you don't know who Lacey Hunt is, not a tinfoil hat guy. He goes all the way back to the Milton Friedman days. He is an OG. He is legit. And you can look him up, you know, Google him for sure. So, so that's how he sees it. So my point is that by creating this Fed coin, what they're doing is they're getting us on the path to hyperinflation. And the faster we get to hyperinflation, obviously that's by definition a loss of confidence in fiat currency. That's when as a society, as a global society, we start looking for an alternative, you know, whatever it is. So you see my point. I think they're going to a Fed coin. They'll do it. Obviously, it's not a cryptocurrency. It's, a, it's a, just a more digital currency that gives them more control. But I think inadvertently, if they do that, they put us right on the path that will lead to their own destruction. Potentially. Um, all right. So here's the second question I was going to ask them because I didn't get it in. That was my mistake. Um, all right. So we're talking about, you know, how Bitcoin might go global, talking about hyperinflation, hyperbitcoinization. We've talked about the path that might be taken to get to a Bitcoin future. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to go back to like that idea, uh, but ask a more specific question. 
what country do you guys think will be the first to publicly disclose that they have bought some Bitcoin for their own treasury, for their sovereign treasury? Um, again, remembering that at the top, we talked about how we have macro investors buying in, big, big investors buying in. We have companies now buying in. Seems like the last uh, kind of stone to fall is, you know, a sovereign nation. Obviously, the game theory says that it's, you know, <clears throat> because it's an asymmetric bet, um, you know, you could make an asymmetric bet on the future of your, you know, country's power and really rise and increase your, uh, your country's power uh, on the global stage significantly uh, by accumulating Bitcoin now. So what do you guys think? Say if you want to start. I think Venezuela. Go ahead. Okay. Because what's their downside? I mean, obviously, the guy running the show there is a complete nut. But if you got someone that actually was, had some sense, then, you know, why not start going on a, let's call it a Bitcoin standard? Uh, because if you look at hyperinflations throughout history, the, the way you typically get rid of that, like with Zimbabwe as an example, you say, okay, we're just automatically overnight, we're not using this Zimbabwe thing anymore, we're using the dollar. And it's just a, a change of confidence. Well, you know, who is going to have, who, what Venezuelan, and I employ a lot of them in Colombia, so I, I, believe me, they're no fans of what's going on there, uh, to say the least. I mean, they, they're, they're it viscerally, it, it makes them sick when I even talk about it on my videos, you know. But, but if, if, so they're going to have this complete loss in anything that the government comes out that even resembles a fiat currency, which just puts them right back in the same position. So why not just say, okay, we're on a Bitcoin standard. We are no longer going to control. I mean, the only other thing they could do is like dollarize, something like that. But I don't think Venezuela would do that because they want nothing to do with the U.S. government in that, although Ecuador did it. But I think that's kind of, you know, what have you got to lose? There's no downside. The only thing you have is upside. So why not? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, the, so we know that Venezuela is uh, using Bitcoin. We know that Venezuela, um, some, some government department, I think for passport renewal, they wanted, they were charging uh, people in Bitcoin because um, they can't get their money from the regular banking system because they're, uh, they're bankrupt. And they were charging Bitcoin, but I think it's not, uh, it, it's not so much about charging and, and holding it uh, or using it. It's about holding it for the long term. That's the really interesting thing. And if, um, you know, if with a government like Venezuela, it doesn't matter how much Bitcoin they buy and sell and spend. They're going to continue to, um, they're going to continue to, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter how much Bitcoin they get in, they're going to continue to spending it, to spend it. And so they won't really benefit from um, holding and appreciating in the long run. Uh, it's really hard to say. I mean, it's 200 uh, governments or something in the world. It's really hard to say which one of them is going to take the uh, uh, take the plunge on it. If I were to make a wild guess, I'd say Switzerland, just because they uh, they were the ones who had the gold standard uh, for the longest time, and uh, they went off the gold standard the most recently. So perhaps they might be the ones that are most receptive to it. Yeah. I'd like to dive into talking a little bit about the market narratives in Bitcoin. And we've seen the narrative change quite a bit. It seems like the prevailing narrative now is probably digital gold, um, you know, in, in terms of like the, wide, the widespread uh, view of Bitcoin. Um, so Safe, how do you see Bitcoin narratives evolving as adoption happens and works its way up the, the S-curve? Um, I mean, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> The main evolution is going to be the one that we mentioned earlier from asymmetric bet on this happening um, in over long term into it becoming more and more of a 
um, just a, a boring monetary asset that everybody uh, holds. And, and that's ultimately it. I think we've seen a lot of narratives come and go, and we're going to continue to see a lot of narratives come and go, you know, with, um, uh, that, that missed the point. Um, but it may just be that uh, hard money is really the, uh, is just going to be the, the, the narrative that is dominant. Yeah, what I'd be curious to know, and I'm sure you guys have your finger on the pulse of this more than I do, is what, are, what is the probability of the, the tech around Bitcoin advancing to the point where it could legitimately be a, a, a medium of exchange? Because correct me if I'm wrong right now, it, it's rather cumbersome, uh, you know, you, the amount of transactions that happen on a daily basis would just completely overwhelm uh, the system and it would, it would be slow or the, the amount of electrical needs, whatnot. But are, I'm assuming there's tons of people that are trying to figure out workarounds for that. Yeah, there are. But I think, I mean, it's a, the thing that I argue in my book is, um, and that's why the title of my book is The Bitcoin Standard, is that you can't really compare Bitcoin transactions with, um, uh, with, with uh, credit card payments. Bitcoin transactions are final settlement transactions. So you have to compare them with settlement payments across international borders. That's the advantage. So, um, you know, if I send you a Bitcoin, uh, if I send you a Bitcoin transaction and, um, and, and you're in the, in the same room, it costs, let's say, five cents and it takes a few minutes or a couple of hours to confirm. But if I send that same transaction across the world to uh, China, that's also going to cost the same thing. So uh, the, 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 um, the, 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 the transactions that are going to be used in, uh, I mean, Bitcoin is going to be used, in my opinion, more as a settlement layer rather than um, for individual payments. I don't think individuals are going to be using Bitcoin to pay for their coffee, the Bitcoin, to, and, 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 and scaling limitations, uh, and I show some numbers in my book, you know, Bitcoin does, um, what is it? half a million transactions a day or something like that. And, um, you know, Visa does, I think, something like 2 billion. And right. so it's, it's completely, you know, even, even if we improve Bitcoin in all kinds of ways, there, there are limitations because it's decentralized that, are meaning, mean, that mean that it'll always be um, different from Visa. But you can't compare Visa payments to Bitcoin payments because Visa payments are credit payments. Visa payment is, you know, my credit card goes to your machine and in your uh, shop, and then my bank tells your bank that they're going to settle with them, and then they sort it out, and it takes several weeks for it to finally settle. But a Bitcoin transaction is final. One, you know, once you've gotten um, six, 10 confirmations, whatever, is gonna take a few hours. Once you've gotten a few of these confirmations, then you've gotten to the point where the transaction is completely secure, you know? Or, well, completely is uh, obviously a big word, but. It's secure and it's irreversible. And so in this regard, I think, you know, and in, in, in this regard, you know, we, we need to think of the Bitcoin chain uh, base layer as being similar to physical gold or physical money in that it's going to be moved around. Central banks will exchange gold and they will exchange physical cash with each other. Uh, and, and banks will move uh, physical cash around. But ultimately, the majority of transactions will be done digitally without the physical underlying asset having to move. And I think Bitcoin is going to scale with that. Like there will be second layer solutions that move, that, that are settled with the second layer Bitcoin. 
Well, uh, second, it's the second on the first layer, settled on the first layer Bitcoin uh, chain. How do you see the extension of credit if we're on a, a Bitcoin standard? Because you, obviously you're not lending or how yeah. does that work? Let me just let me. My, my, my feeling, well, I wouldn't say feeling. I think the, the way that I, that I think about it is that in, in that kind of situation where we have hard money and um, yeah, w- uh, what would happen is that banking would, d- would have two functions deposits where you pay people in order to store your money for you and have it available for you and uh, use it to settle payment around the world. And I think this is, you know, this is a very valuable service that your money is at once safe from theft and uh, also uh, a a click of a button away from being sent to China. So you pay people for offering you that uh, service. So deposit banking, and then there's equity banking in my mind or equity investment. I don't see uh, the possibility of, uh, I, I, I don't think credit really makes sense in this world, but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't see why it wouldn't be a problem. I think deposit banking and equity are all that anybody needs. If you want your money to just remain safe, if you, draw, if you want your money to uh, be there, then you, place it, you pay people to store it. Now, if you want your money to earn a return, they can't just store it for you. They have to put it out, which means that there's going to be a risk involved which means that it's going to be invested. And in a world in which nobody has a money printer and central banks can't bail out banks, I don't see how you can make, um, you, you can make, uh, you, you can give depositors guarantees on their investment. And if uh, investors or, or lenders, if lenders are uh, not offered the guarantee on the downside because the central bank can't bail them out, I don't see why they would want to lend with a fixed interest rate rather than just taking equity, which has unlimited upside. Right. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, we're, we're not looking at a fractional reserve system there. I don't think it would work. I think, you know, uh, Bitcoin fixes the uh, glitch in gold that makes fractional reserve banking uh, work because yeah. um, gold yeah. requires banks and, and, and places so much value in banks' ability to clear money that it's almost like it allows them to print money because they're so, they almost have like a monopoly network on banks. And so Bitcoin, by making settlements so cheap and open to anybody and open source and not monopolistic, you know, anybody can set up their own Bitcoin node and settle payments for people all over the world. I think by making it into an open market, um, it, it makes it very hard for banks to engage in things like fractional reserve banking or maturity transformation. And that's, that's also something I get into in detail in the fiat standard. Yeah, I just wonder how that would work with the growth of the economy needing uh, a growth of the money supply or if it just comes through deflation. deflation. Like Maybe we get 5 10% deflation a year. Yeah, right. Because that, in essence, would, would increase the amount of, uh, I want to call them the units of measurement available. Like, let's just say that we had one Bitcoin or had $1.00. You know, a lot of people say, well, then the economy can never grow, but it could if you just divided the dollar into smaller, exactly. such as pennies, right? Yeah. Um, and, then that, and then everyone that was saving uh, those quarters, or in this case, Bitcoin, they would just get richer and richer and richer just by, by holding it. So anyway, it's just kind of a, a thing that I've tried to, to think through there. I appreciate your feedback. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolutely amazing idea when you think about it, that anybody can have their wealth hold its value and appreciate over time. And that's available for anybody anywhere. 
And then, uh, you know, if you want to take on extra risk, you then, uh, you know, once you've, once you've established an amount of saving that can, um, you know, that, that it can protect you from, say, uh, a rainy day or losing your job or whatever, and then you're able to take risk, then you're able to put investments in. But, you know, you'll only invest and take risk once you find something that's extremely compelling as an investment. And I think in that world, we'd only get resources diverted toward um, really valuable investments that produce value in the long term. 100%. Yeah, we go back to what I was talking about, the sustainable business, because your hurdle exactly. rate is so much higher. I mean, think what your hurdle rate is when you're getting a, a business loan at call it 3%, you know, fixed rate over 30 years compared to if your hurdle rate was 10%. I mean, how much stronger would the cash flows of those businesses need to be? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We had Jeff Booth on a couple of episodes ago with Lynn Alden in his book, The Price of Tomorrow. He talks a lot about the, the deflationary forces that technology, you know, brings that we've actually like with the fiat standard been overcoming or the, or suppressing the deflationary forces of technology. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and so, yeah, I think the risk of deflation, um, you know, like causing some problems or making uh, I, I don't believe in the, uh, you know, the hoarding effect anyway, or the, bringing the uh, economy to a standstill in any way. Uh, but, you know, with the deflationary, you know, effects of technology, then it's just like no risk at all of it. I think we're going to see really quick deflation, especially with the hard money economy. Uh, okay, guys, we are, uh, time is up there. Um, I want to respect your guys' time and, and we'll wrap it up. So okay. um, any, any closing words? No, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I appreciate you both for, for your time and, uh, and expressing your views. I've learned a lot. Um, likewise, thank you. I really enjoyed this as well. And I wanted to, uh, I want to pick your brain about uh, references on a couple of things that you mentioned, the 7% um, return in the 1890s. If you can give uh, me references. On the- I was just using the 4% uh, yeah. 3% deflation to get the, the 7% real. Yeah, I, I'm looking for sources on this and a couple of other things. I, I'll probably uh, email you about them. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Let's see. Do you guys have my, I think you've got my email, don't you? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to say facet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much guys. And again, uh, you know, you can find Safedine's work at safedine.com. That's uh, S A I F E D E A N and George Gammon at youtube.com slash George Gammon. It's been a fantastic episode guys. Of course you can start stacking some Bitcoin. I know you want to now, uh, you know, <laughs> you can go stack some Bitcoin regularly and, uh, you know, steadily with automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. And uh, thanks, everyone, Thank for you. being here yeah. today. Take care. Thank you so much, Brady. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much again to Safe and George for joining us today. You can find Safe on Twitter at Safedean. That's at S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N. And George is at George Gannon. I am at Citizen Bitcoin. On behalf of the SWAN team, thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the SWAN Signal Podcast. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcast at youtube.com slash swansignal. So head over there, subscribe, and turn on the notifications. We have a lot of fun in the live chat, and we often are able to work in some questions from listeners. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. Follow us on Twitter at swanbitcoin and subscribe to the podcast at swansignalpodcast.com.